Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Eileen Miles, is the author of more than 20 books of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, librettos, and plays. As a poet, they came into being through the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York City in the 1970s, studying under, under the likes of Alice Notley and Ted Berrigan, and ultimately becoming the artistic director at St. Mark's in the mid-1980s. In the late 70s, they published the poetry magazine Dodgems that is described as a collision of New York school language poetry, performance texts, 
unconventional prose, and tossed-off notes from neighbors and celebrities. In the same era, Miles also co-edited the feminist anthology Ladies Museum and worked as an assistant for the poet James Schuyler. The early 1990s saw a leap in Miles' visibility with the release of their poetry collection Not Me from Semiotext, their write-in candidacy for president, and the release of the novel Chelsea Girls. It was also in the 90s when Miles toured Germany with Kathy Acker, Lynn Tillman, Richard Howell, and Chris Krauss, and co-edited the anthology The New F.U. Adventures in Lesbian Reading. Since 2000, in addition to the poetry collections Miles released, Miles published the novels Cool for You and Inferno, a Poet's Novel, wrote the libretto for the opera Hell, released the essay collection The Importance of Being Iceland, Travel Essays in Art, and created and directed the performance piece The Collection of Silence, which involved dancers, poets, children, visual artists, and Buddhists in a collective public act of silence at the Hispanic Society in New York. As a poet and art journalist, Miles has appeared in a wide range of publications, including Art Forum, The New Yorker, Harper's, The Nation, The New York Times, and The Paris Review. They are the winner of four Lambda Literary Awards, the Clark Prize for Excellence in Art Writing, and the Shelley Memorial Award from the Poetry Society of America. And most recently, Miles has had both a significant retrospective moment with the reissue of Chelsea Girls and the release of their new and selected poems, I Must Be Living Twice, both from Echo Press, and the introduction of their work to a new audience with their poetry featured in season two and three of the show Transparent, with a character on the show being modeled after Miles and with Miles also appearing on the show themselves. As if that were not enough, Miles is also the recent recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, which facilitated the writing of their most recent book that we're talking about today, Afterglow, a dog memoir. Writer Colm Tobin says of Afterglow, following Eileen Miles around a dog is like following Leopold Bloom around Dublin. Reading Afterglow is like entering the company of a sensibility that is rich, original, witty, and tonally brilliant. It is the darting asides, the phrasing, and the subplots that matter most in this book that give pure, sheer, constant pleasure. Chris Krauss adds, what is a dog if not God? In Afterglow, Eileen Miles steps up to the challenge for writers to function as prophets. Ghost written in part by deceased Pitbull Rosie, this dog memoir explores, among other things, geometry, gender, mortality, evil, aging, and plaids. Miles makes new rules for what prose writing can be. Afterglow is Miles' funniest, profoundest work yet. Welcome to Between the Covers, Eileen Miles. <laughs> hey, David. <laughs> hey there. Um, well, if we look at your, your two novels that precede Afterglow... You called Cool For You a nonfiction novel, and Inferno is a poet's novel. Mm -hmm. And you've also talked about wanting to mess with the term novel. Right. And it feels like memoir comes with a, a lot that people bring to the word memoir, to an expectation of a memoir. And I was wondering, because I feel like Afterglow could be a nonfiction novel also, but you're calling it a dog memoir. So mm -hmm. tell us if you're also trying to trouble that term, and if so, in what way? Right. Um, well, it's so funny. I mean, I think the term memoir is troubled, you know? I mean, I, I remember, like, I don't know if it was in the 90s or the, even the aughts when um, they just suddenly, when there became like a rush of memoirs. And I remember this kind of mainstream elders sort of sneering and saying these are like half lives. You know, like a memoir <laughs> is supposed to be the grand old man or woman, 
but mostly guys who had lived an enormously long night, you know, life and had incredible things to talk about of great significance to everyone. And it was suddenly it would be, you know, some younger woman having some story to tell about something that wasn't, you know, like a political supposedly concert, you know. And so, um, and I've always, I've always liked nonfiction, and it's sort of a, a little, it's it kind of it definitely in its, its new newer forms and its sort of raggediness. And I came up at a time when new journalism was like really hot stuff when I was in college, like Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion and Hunter Thompson, and it just it was like wild, hmm. and it just seemed like poetry and and the day. And politics were all merging in this way. And everybody was it's kind of jazzy. Like people were just kind of improving with where they would bust the boundaries. And um, But but for me, it, it still always seemed like memoir had to do with some recitation of truth. You know, or it too often, you know, like Oprah's mad at, was it James Fry? Because his memoir wasn't actually true. And so I felt like it always seemed more contractual than anything I ever wanted to do, you know. But when my dog started dying, um, I just started writing because that's what I do. That's what I know how to do. And and it just was this accumulation. And I thought it was simply a nonfiction book that was about her. So it almost it almost like kind of titillated me that I thought, okay, this can be a memoir because it's about a dog and she really is dying and I really do want on. My desire was simple and sentimental. And so I thought I would go with it. But of course, the, the messing with the form came later when I, you know, like I had basically shot my 50-page wad of, of, of what her dying was. And then it was the aftermath, which kept turning and turning into other things and multiplying and becoming metonymic and, and um, frothy and foamy. And, and so it just, you know, it, I think the, th- the thing with a book period is that it always becomes a writing workshop with oneself. And so after that first burst, you have to figure out how to keep going and how to construct that going. And um, so all of that wound up being like a memoir. I think... You know, the book was for a long time. It was called My Dog, and and it kept being referred to as the Dog Book. By the time I, you know, and and then I think accidentally I was in Provincetown, and there was a um an after season arts festival called Afterglow, and I had the postcard up over my desk, and I was like, wait a second, you know. And so when it became that, it still seemed like it kept being called the Dog Book. So it was very late that we decided to. But I think I'd, I knew it was a memoir. I mean, yeah. uh, to answer your question, I, I kind of <laughs> I knew it was that, and I loved how much I was deforming that. Yeah, and you you mentioned two things that I wanted to bring up. The one in the larger sense, this sense of expectation around authenticity and sincerity that it comes with the memoir, but then the particular expectation around pet memoirs of sen- of sentimentality or or this expectation of a certain type of book. And you've mentioned that you didn't want to write a sappy dog memoir, but you wanted to write an itchy dog memoir. So can you talk about what considerations go into writing an itchy dog memoir, one that while maybe looking at sentiment is also sort of undermining that expectation? Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's the things you don't want to see. I mean, it's like the the to to really focus not on what a wonderful dog she was, but more what it was like to see that creature corrode, you know, how, how icky and awful and, and exhilarating dying, the love, the dying of a loved one is that was, it was this participatory. So I, I, I thought it, you know, like to let it be as dark as hell, I thought mm-hmm. it would be a punk account of a dog dying. And, and, you know, I think that 
that I think of a lot, and because I thought of it when I was writing it too, was all that when Frank O'Hara died, Larry Rivers got up at his memorial and told people what Frank looked like in the hospital before he died. Like mm-hmm. he was swollen, he had tubes going in and out of him. It was just this kind of, and it always seemed like this amazing, um, you know, like action of an artist to to say here look i mean like baudelaire you know it's like our our modern sense of beauty is a, an ugly thing you know which is that thing that what why we you know in america which is so crazy and conservative we want you know a memorial a, de- a war memorial we don't want to see some ugly thing that looks like war we want to see some like beautiful right. you know and i wanted you know i wanted to do the ugly thing you know which turned out to be a beautiful thing and and you know and it just has lots of resonances too with 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 aids because um i just was with i mean those are my friends tim dugos um you know just people people known and unknown who were close very close to me that i saw have covered be covered in lesions and gorgeous mostly men who who southern withered down into a bone and and just swollen lips and i mean it was like we witnessed that and yet i never did the whole thing with anybody and i did the whole thing with rosie Mm -hmm. and that seemed really special and that's what was amazing to me is when i the times that i most noticed myself tearing up were uh the times when you were cleaning rosie's butt or um she was having trouble with using her legs and there was a sense of uh, of failure and imminent demise, and um, there's also the sense of sort of the uh, routine logistics of doing that too, but somehow in that there was, you know, like you think of a sentimental dog memoir, we think, okay, it's going to make me cry, Mm -hmm. but here we are in Afterglow, and it's these things that are never mentioned in those other memoirs that are doing that instead. And there's there's like this radiance, and also just think, I mean, the the thing about a, a dog, of course, is that what you don't share truly is language. And yet somehow that was the space in which she would allow me to take care. You know what I mean? It was just like, you know, she was a proud dog. She yeah. wanted to get to the door by herself and go out and pee in her yard. And yet she couldn't do it. And there was shame and pain. And, and then you were being allowed by that creature to serve her, Yeah, which was kind of amazing. Can, yeah. can we hear a little bit of the prose? Yeah. yeah. Rosie began dying in June, having those mysterious fits. At the end of each was a puddle of piss. I went to my meeting on Adams Ave in the evening and I talked about it. The one near the park with the working people, the beautiful dog walker, the pale, curly-haired man who taught law and came in covered in sweat almost naked from running. One night he and I stood on the sidewalk under those shady trees. He said, my name is Philip, lover of horses. He smiled. I thought he was flirting with me, but it was part of his euphoria. I understood because I was the one with the dying dog. My friend, the older woman, said, you've got to stop. I was biting my fingers. My dog is dying. I kept saying it. I wash her ass, and then I wash all the towels. One evening, I was feeling a little extra naked after describing the ritual of mopping her piss, and I thought, that's it. She's God. And I felt so calm. I found God now. My God, my dog, I chuckled. That's it. Our room. This is ecstasy, and everything got bright. She's dying, and I'm watching her. I'm not thinking about it, not that that makes any difference. I got this intention, this understanding. Anyone ever say suffering was about difference? It sops it all up. We are this picture of ourselves now, Rosie and I, and we want to be seen. I took such care of her when she was dying. I relished it. She made me go slow. I'd hear the rustling of her limbs, and I'd rush to her because she couldn't get up, and there was generally a puddle already there. 
In my house, I have beautiful wooden floors. Now I had a pile of face cloths, torn towels, rags. I'd mop up her urine with a clean, dry towel, and then I'd come back and wash her ass. I'd come back with a damp one, wash it again, and then I'd wipe her dry. I made sure she was really comfortable. I'd do it with love. I intended my dog's ass, the collapse of her rear legs that I saw as little high heels. I imagined her a drag queen or a young girl unsteadily teetering, a touching failure. I swooped in and made it better, made it comfortable. I felt loving. I felt like a god, too. I felt less ambivalently loving than I have ever felt in my life. Now I know what love feels like. I do it and I think it. I love feeling this. Love, love, <laughs> love loving your doggy ass. My home became a shrine. The bird of paradise around the door, the late night and early morning dog barking in the dark canyon beyond the yard. When I bought the house, it said on the deed, Disclosures, dogs in canyon. What could that mean? Hundreds and hundreds of dogs barking day and night. Not all the time, just when any one of them got an idea, then they all got it. There's a growly picture of me standing in the screened-in porch light flooding in over that canyon, and I look like an animal. But the animal looks great. You see a movie sometimes in which someone is doing something really difficult, waging war, defending their family, walking very far and very long, and they look terrific. They look great. The hair looks good. The person looks, well, they look hot. And I would watch these spectacles with a doubleness. I'd keep watching because... Unless the movie is really bad, I'm usually enthralled, but I always think no one would look so good doing that. But in fact, people often look radiant suffering. How often have you told someone they look fabulous and they say, thanks, because I feel terrible? And you can see it right behind their eyes. Terrible puts a candle in there. Terrible turns on the light. You wonder if people are just empty when they're moving forward with the plan, when it's all on the outside and the world is full of light. But when you suffer, the light is in. It's all yours. We've been listening to Eileen Miles read from her latest book, Afterglow, a dog memoir. We, you mentioned earlier uh, both the fact that the main separation between you and Rosie is the absence of, of a shared language, mm -hmm. and also that the first 50 pages are the place where we really get the, the dot, you being intimately connected to your dog as she's dying. <laughs> uh, and it feels like... That's the area where I feel like we're most like intimately connected with the two of you on uh, on the what I would say, I don't know, the closest heart level. But then there's something that happens before what you read, which makes I think keeps us on uneven ground. And that's yeah. the fact that the book opens with you being served a, a, a subpoena or a, a, or something from the from the lawyer of your dog. Right. A test case uh -huh. on behalf of Dog Nation. Uh, based on the various ways dogs have been subordinated to the human species, which I, I would love for you just to talk about that because it's it's interesting to experience this very moving love that you have for Rosie, but then also to um, know that the dog, on the other hand, is has um, has been getting people on its side to um, inter <laughs> essentially interrogate the acts that you've done previously mm -hmm. that we don't know know about yet. I mean, I, I think that the thing that's so funny about having a dog is that you, no matter what you do, you feel like you you are somehow being unjust to your dog. I mean, the thing is, you, you, you've got this being, this mammal living with you that is completely dependent on you for food, for walks outside. They can't pee. They can't not fail unless you take the responsibility of, of, 
of you know getting them out there and um and I can just, as a person who, who's lived in New York most of their adult life, I can just think of a million times when I was going out at night, I had some important thing to do. And, um, and then I thought, oh, i got to walk Rosie. And then I, then I would take her off for a drag, you know, like really <laughs> a horrible 10 or 7-minute walk. And she, she could just tell by the streets we were on that I, this was a bad deal, that she was not going to get to someplace she liked. She was not going to see other dogs. She was not going to play. She was just going to like urinate and go home and be in all night, you know. And so we, she would take this pokey walk and then I would get to my building and walk her up the stairs. And I would just keep turning as I was trying to yank her up the stairs even faster. And I would see this look that, that again, we, the certain words we can't see, but say on the radio, but it would be like, bleep you, Eileen, bleep you, you know, because I just <laughs> felt like this dog is furious at me. Yeah. So I feel like that, that tank of projected feeling that I know was there in whatever way it expressed itself wound up being like, wound up producing a document at the head of the book, which was simply a letter from, you know, from Rosie's lawyer on behalf of all dogs suing me for all the crimes against a dog. And it just, it's so interesting. I mean, I think um, it was pointed out to me, I was just in Los Angeles, and it was more of the epicenter of some of the stuff that's going on culturally right now about um, men of power in relationship to women and potentially, I suppose, men who have less power than them and sexual assault and abuse and all that. And so there's even a document in here called The Rape of Rosie in which I talk. I mean, it's horrendous. I read it. I read it at a book at a bookstore in Los Angeles last night. And essentially, it just, you know, I wanted my dog to have puppies. And so I didn't want to have a baby, but I wanted my dog to have a baby. And so I forced her to have sex when she did not want to do it. And I described it. And it was so disturbing. I mean, in the room, you were like, this, how can this not be a crime? You know, she's not into it, you know. And, um, and so it was just, I felt like it was very, to take mammalian responsibility towards these creatures. So I'm both, it's funny, I'm both sending it up and kind of horrified with the awesomeness of my crime. You know, in terms of loving and owning and dispensing my own sick sense of justice towards this dog. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that's one of the most amazing parts of the book is that chapter, but I didn't want to use the word amazing because I was also horrified. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's that strange feeling of like from a dramatic literary perspective, I thought that that chapter was 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 profound, but mm -hmm. also um, the one that I, I'm still unsettled by at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and very much the letter from the lawyer came from that chapter. It did. I mean, what I mean is just emotionally. I think yeah. that's like a big, oh, piece right, the, right. big piece of the trick or why. Yes, you would sue. Yes, because that's what we're, we're talking about today, right? <laughs> yeah. People, people are, 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 you know, making claims against their, their quote, masters. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so one thing we, we learn right off, so we learn that, that Rosie's going to have a voice. So uh -huh. Rosie's going to have a voice in this book, and one of the really great parts about the letter we get from the lawyer is your name is in quotes mm -hmm. in scare quotes just like uh, Rosie's is because right. Rosie never got to choose her own name and so why would they grant you like this a better status around your name so you're in scare quotes mm -hmm. um, which really it's going back to this idea of like a contract around a memoir like who's speaking in, in afterglow becomes less and less clear mm -hmm. or you know it's very polyvocal but it, it made me wonder just in a, in a greater sense, you've, you've talked about writing as performance mm -hmm. and you've also taught classes on, on what you call performance writing. So I, could you, could you talk about performance with, with regards to writing? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I th- what's I think it's fun. I think I think um, honestly, I think writing is performance. The act of writing is is always that because I mean, there's so, for so many reasons. One, I mean, I think when I write, I feel so much so much more that I'm that I'm hearing. You know, like I'm kind of listening to something and I'm doing the writing for it. You know, and so there's there's some way in which it's sort of like as a body. I think you're a little bit. Um, I mean, I think people who I mean. I think people who write are sort of the same people who read, you know, and what is reading? What is the act of reading? You're taking other voices, other passages of time, other social realities in, and you're just, you're creating this, this cycle, you know, and I think when people say, um, oh, I always wanted to write a book. I mean, I think that hopefully means they've read a book that they've loved, that they're part of, they're a participant in this flow. And sometimes at some point it'll flow back, but does it, you know, and I think when you sit down and become somebody who does it and writes the book, you're, you're performing that action, which is to make there be more such texts, more such voices in the world. Um, but I think that there's another thing. I mean, I think I got up and read my work before I ever published my work. And part of it just was that it was harder to get published than it was to, to stand up at an open mic, mm. you know? And so it was just like when I got to New York in the 70s, and I, and I did what everybody did before I came to New York and while I was in New York at the beginning, which was that I sent my poems in to the places that everybody knows about. So that was like The New Yorker, Paris Review, and or I'd go to some bookstore and I'd see a magazine called Caterpillar. You know, there were certain magazines that were around in the 70s and 80s, Kayak, and everybody sent their poems to them. And then you would get these like Xeroxed rejection slips that usually didn't even have a little note. Um, and, and, and so it, when I got to New York and realized there were other options, you know, and, and they became about publishing, too. But the first one was to, you know, to stand up at the mic, which was so cool. Because, again, I was like of the generation of the singer-songwriter like Joni Mitchell, and she tapes her regrets to the microphone stand. You know, and we all heard lines like that and one, like, that's what I want to do. Except I didn't sing. I didn't play a guitar. So I was going to do it as a poet, you know. So it felt like when you got up at the mic, you, you were performing. And, you know, and I, you know, like I went pretty far with that because then you know then I met people who had little magazines I realized you didn't have to send it to the New Yorker you could pass it to the guy next to you in the workshop that you were in a community of writers and publishers and and I started to become part of that and publish my own magazine and and so on but um but also um by the 80s performance art was so much huger than poetry Mm. and at first all it seemed to be was you just memorized your poems and so instead of the burden of paper or a book in front of an audience you would just get up and be it and so there was this kind of embodiment and then there were people like Spalding Gray or Karen Fenley who were were like kind of more storytelling you know and would just you know and 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 I fooled around with that and that's what led me to run for president basically I was instead of memorizing texts i was doing taking i was performing the practice of improvising a story in front of an audience and learning how to speak publicly and um and that led me to the act of citizenship which was running for president which actually I, this dog got roped into as my running mate but so that all and i <laughs> but i think the end of the story really is that once you've done all that and kind of memorized and talked and done all these different ways and then taught you know and um all the different kinds of locations in front of people it's just like by the time you get back to like you know like being at the mic with a piece of paper or a book and reading you're a performer yeah you know but you've also mentioned that when you're not at the mic 
when you're writing that sometimes you're imagining a, that you're writing towards a specific person? Like, you imagine an audience? I imagine individuals that I want to understand me. <laughs> it's like, or people that I have crushes on, or people that I have one more thing to say, or somebody that I think will think this is funny. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm often amusing myself or somebody else, you know, so there's just a lot of... Um, and yeah. that audience of one might might shift throughout a project? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've heard other, I mean, like, the late John Ashbery has a great book called um, Three Poems, and, and it's prose, which, so that's the first joke of it. But apparently he said that when he, he had a therapist, I don't know if it was in New York or Paris, who he was telling his therapist about all these feelings he had about all these different people, and the therapist is like, well, why don't you write something and talk to all those different people? You know, and so this work that, that is formally so exciting and challenging is actually a multivocal performance Hmm. To and and John claimed that he didn't remember who those people were anymore. Right, and I think I feel the same way. I'm not sure who I was obsessed with in the ten years that it took to write this book. Hmm. Well, I want, I was curious about if you had a notion of self, and one of the things that you've that I read that you you've said that um, when you moved to New York from Boston, that you performed the role of of the Boston working class poet. And you are a Boston working class poet. <laughs> right. Um, but you also were performing that role in right. this in this community that you were entering. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and 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 if at all how it reflects back on on your notion of what a self is, if if you have a notion of what a what a self is? Right, right. Um, God heart the last part is the hardest part in a way. But I think I think that it's, I mean, like, we're like thinking animals, right? I mean, like, I think that's the difficulty. And I think that's why we bring animals into our lives to kind of, like, enhance certain things and, and um, experience them differently. But um, but I think that, the, I mean, like, when uh, theoretically, when people talk about being female, being queer, being of color, you there's a doubling all the time. If there's an idea that you're not in power, if there's an idea that, you're standing out in some way that people are looking at you in a certain way. Certainly every woman who came to New York at a certain period of time and maybe today, you know, you would like, hey, look at my poems, you know, and people would be like, hey, look at her ass, you know, and it was just like you think you're in one exchange, but you're actually in the other, you know, and it's like a bait and switch all the time. And so I think I write with that, you know, I know that that what I'm writing is being received in some other way, you know? And then sometimes I start to then think of that other way and then write into that a little bit, you know? And then I realize, I mean, I think it's so interesting. It's sort of like often you think you're performing and then you realize it's actually, these are your true feelings. You just thought you were like, you know, auditioning this or, or, you know, I mean, and likewise, you know, when I came to New York, I suddenly was struck by this sense that, oh, all these kids went to private schools, you know, and they probably, you know, or, or, you know, people would pick up on my accent instantly and think that, you know, like whatever feelings they had about Boston or whatever feelings they had about working class people or, and then add female to that and then add heavy drinker to that, you know. And, and so there was just a, just a way in which the best defense is a strong offense. And I think my offense was to, to somehow be a cartoon of myself, mm. you know, which then sometimes was very accurate. You know, sometimes, you know, you see videotapes of yourself when you were younger and you were like, I can't believe I said that, you know. And I think you just your your own vulnerability, just as you think you're being strong or tough or powerful, you're being incredibly readable and really vulnerable and just, you know, like kind of like 
kind of pathetic but sort of great, you know. And it's and so I just think that it's just such a negotiation and such an improvisation, um, managing yourself, especially you know, like in Boston, people were like, "Hey, Lena, what have you been doing?" You know, and in New York, it was like, "What do you do?" And they don't they don't mean how did you spend your day? They mean why are you here? You know, what 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 is it you're going after, and how much of it do you have now? You know, and it just was like. Very alarming, you know, and it, I, I was in a different class in a way, and maybe the no class of the artist class, but as we know, there's lots of hidden class values in that, mm. you know. And so in a way, I, you know, you're, you're playing to all of them, and each one has a different vocabulary, and then you start code switching, mm. you know. And so it's like, yeah, where's the self in there? I'm not sure. I think it's the performing entity. Well, you know? well that's what I was going to ask you because I think one of the – Probably the funniest part of the book for me, but also perhaps the deepest part is when Rosie, your dog, goes on the puppet talk show, and um, is there's a show run by puppets with the puppet nation is is watching Rosie and Rosie is talking about a human career being like a like a puppet show or a magic act, and in that same section, Rosie says it is not what is inside you that matters; the inside is empty, mm-hmm. and it made me think of your role on Transparent, how there's a character on the show that's loosely modeled on you. And that character is reciting your poems as her poems. Uh-huh. And you're on the show as someone else. Right. Watching someone being you reading your art. Right, right. And, and it made me wonder, I guess, around maybe you've already answered this, but I wondered if you thought that the, if, that the inside is empty, if you agreed with your dog that, that the layered story is the true story. If, if it's this layering um, uh, potentially upon an emptiness underneath that is the, that is the self. Right, right. Well, I think, I mean, I think we're in this curious position of being writers and thinkers in a time when there's so many possibilities, not just for our own um, capacity to, to have, to realize there are multiple ways of viewing us in those multiple performances in oneself, but that we have this, you know, art of, art of mechanical, mechanical reproduction that, that lev- is on so many levels of photograph and video and TV and shows and, you know, just clips and gifts and, you know, just like we're just in this maze of, of layers. So I think it's probably, it seems to me it's like truer than ever, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we're, just, we're just kind of, I mean, everything is water. I think we're sort of trying to dog paddle our way through all these, these kind of momentary, you know, apparitions or, or apprehensions, you know. And it was, and it was like too, that just to be a cartoon, it's like, it's so funny to be a person who I'm so, I'm so self-conscious. And I think part of it, I don't know, I mean, like for me, I think when I was young and I, I lost my dad and I didn't know how to mourn. So I started to perform mourning. I remember I would like go down to the cemetery as myself and I didn't feel anything, but I would just look and try and like look sad, you know, and I would try and to do various things, you know, like babysitting, doing extra work because I must be poor now. We must, I must be an orphan, you know, like not knowing how to stage loss, you know? Um, and so actually, where was I going with this? Um, sorry, I think I lost my train right That's there. all right. Yeah. I, I'm glad well, you brought up your dad because it seems like that's a crucial thing to talk about in Afterglow. There's a whole bunch of ways in which you have different identities and also different ways that Rosie has different identities in the book. So Rosie has names for you right. and you have obviously have names for Rosie, but you also are, are um, convinced that Rosie is the reincarnation of your dad in the mm-hmm. book. So talk to us about that phenomenon and also about w- what your dad was like and why you see 
or saw your your dad and, and your dog. Right, right. Um, well, for one thing, I just want I I sort of I sort of got back where I was going, which is to say that I think that I think through through a, a personal loss, which was the loss of my dad as a kid, I think I kind of, you know, like in printing, when they used to do um, two-color printing, when for it was all computers, if, if you went to put the second color on and you missed and it was off, they would say your registration's off. And I feel like my registration has been off since my dad died and I started watching myself and I started watching myself perform. And um, and so in a lot of ways for me, my own all my writing is trying to trying to get registered, <laughs> you know, to get back. And sometimes you you get registered by making more copies, and sometimes you're trying to recreate that original. But I think you know, like I simply, you know, you, you have two parents, and sometimes the mother gets paid short shrift because she's there. You know, she simply cares. She simply gets some clothes on you and gets you to school and feeds you. And I mean, my mother, you know, was. This book is dedicated to her, incidentally. Yeah. Um, but she was, you know, she was a difficult, strange, charismatic woman. But my dad was the one who very literally, I mean, she had the, she was at the business of taking care of us. And whoever she was and whoever she wanted to be was like backseat, you know. But my dad was like kind of, he was an alcoholic. He was a showman. And he very, I mean, I think I was the favorite kid. He very much saw me. He just somehow or other, I amused him. I can remember the first time I told my dad a joke and what I got back from it was like it, I had done something astonishing. I told my father a joke. It was a stupid joke. And he laughed. And I was like, whoa, whoa, that's an amazing power. And and sought to reproduce that and, and kind of. And so I think I, I've, I'm a fortunate person and even a fortunate female in that I think my my ego is shored up by this man, you know, and it was like everything I was interested in, whether it was drawing or science, I was in, I'd be into science and a microscope would appear, you know, a pastels would appear, drawing paper, you know. So it was kind of like he just was this drunken resource. And um, and so he was sort of an ineffectual camera in a way because he really was like he died young of, of alcoholism, of disease. And so I didn't have that support. And it was certainly not even necessarily comfortable support or attention, but it was there. And it made me think that I was special and that I had magic and I could do so, you know, even I think when I started to write when I was in, I mean, I assumed I would be good because I had been brought up to by this guy to think I was kind of amazing, huh. you know. And so it's just like with all the self-effacingness of that as well, you know, because I didn't go to schools or a system where they were like identifying me as a, you know, gifted child. Yeah. So I was just kind of a weird, awkward tomboy with a bad perm and broken front teeth that, that was making art, you know. When you talked about performing mourning, when I was reading the interview you did with Ben Lerder in the Paris Review, you talked about how you were actually as 11, an 11-year-old 11 alone in the room when your dad died, and that then no one talked to you about how that must have felt when that happened. And I couldn't help but you know put myself in that place and think that I, I can't imagine not maybe blaming myself as at that age. And I wondered, like, was there something else going on, like other than the performance of mourning, like figuring out, like figuring out, like what was my role in? I was alone in the room with my right. dad, and and but um, but I guess I was wondering, like, was there a narrative as an eleven-year-old that you constructed that 
that endured because no one was asking you how you felt. So it never had a chance to intersect with what the reality of that moment was. Yeah. I mean, I think even, even in the book, I have um, Rosie saying, first you killed your father, then you killed a parakeet and then you killed me, you know? Yeah. And, and so I think there was certainly, you know, I, I, I waited, I waited. I was, I just was like, Oh my God. I mean, like when somebody dies, they make all these sounds and they change color. It was just like an amazing performance. And I, didn't I, I was so panic struck that I didn't want to do anything until I knew for sure he was dying, you know, and probably, you know, there was like it was, you know, it was like it was horrendous. He was like at late stage alcoholism was bad. And so our lives were very rocked by this guy's condition, you know, and so there probably was some part of me that wanted him to die, huh. you know, so all of that. And then I went and got my mother and then he was, you know, so that I think there was, you know, it was. There's technologies today that maybe could have saved him because he died of a cerebral hemorrhage, you know what I mean? And they could have, they had lousy um, EEGs then, and now they have better ones. And so I've heard of people surviving, you know, but I think, you know, he was on the way out because he was drinking himself to death. So it was all right. kind of related. So I certainly blame myself. I certainly thought it was my fault, hmm. you know. Can, can we hear some more prose from the book? Yeah. I knew I would be one alone in my family. I was in the middle, the quiet one, the receiver. I felt the tugging from the male side and another from the female, and those were my siblings. Yet this in-betweenness, this aloneness, hear it now, is holy. I begged my parents fervently for an animal to be an army with me. My story would have moved on so much faster if that dog friend had come aboard so early on. If dog had come into my child life, my father would not have needed to return. He knew this and brought me a small sandy dog I named Taffy, and yet my mother returned Taffy, this male, to the ASPCA the next morning, where he most likely died. His crime? That he had cried through that first long night, as all dogs do. I would have learned so much from him. Get this. I would have been a prophet at 12 instead of 60. But I am very grateful to have had Rosie and her antecedent, the man, my father, and as it stood, I was alone in my family, alone in my world, my one ally in the house, the man, my father was dying. I do need to talk about, hear it, the orientation of alcoholism in order to talk about my father. As David Bowie suggested in a powerful film, and as certainly Jesus Christ suggested too of the human tribe, we thirst. There's a very simple reason for this thirst. We are fish. You know, the earth was once covered with water, and when the higher being, who I choose to call dog, felt tired of being alone, the waters receded, and suddenly there was land. And the fish crawled to land and grew legs. Why wouldn't dog go into the waters and speak to the fish in another time? Why did the very essence of the fish, some of them, have to change? If you had the powers of a dog who created at least the universe, and I have a feeling dog created many universes, but I don't know how many, I am privy to a great deal of knowledge, but not all. And this is the very nature of my humility, even restraining the waters of alcoholism in my own life, and I know I know less. And one would assume that dog could do anything, but no, because there are simple laws even dog needs to obey. You cannot speak underwater. Thus there is no poetry, the original speech. Dog wanted to have a conversation with man and the dogs within us, and the fish, frankly, needed to speak. You know how Dog accomplished all this. He pictured it. He pictured an earth covered with water, and he pictured it dry. Listen to me. And the fish going up on shore and discovering feet. Dog is lonely. We can see that lonely in every dog's eyes, and that loneliness is love. It causes us to do good things. Hear this. 
such as the power of our army, because the enemy of that love is dying. Every dog is fading slow, returning to the waters of time, which is the nature of dog's eyes. His seeing is the sea. Meanwhile, on this earth, on this planet, we are thirsty. Are we brave enough to see this thirst as longing? We want to go home, so we go to the beach. Understand, we wait for night. The little living human is framed as continually by opposites. One of the ways we experience this in the living realm is in the limitations of things. Can we accept this longing, feel it, even maybe occasionally go down to the beach, jump in, drive off, and walk on? Do we accept our fate? The holiest people live by the sea with their dogs. Look at Mary Oliver, that is a saint. But there are, gr- there are a great many challenges to our frame. Think of a mind as a sea, its own inland sea. We can connect to the enormity of others, the sea in them. We can connect a dog, hound of the ocean, as the ancients once said. But there is an agony at first, but maybe a little all the time, a kind of oceanic stretch, aching impossible thoughts. Some people take a giant leap themselves by being gay. Other people need to kill them, cannot accept the thought, the gay thought, that things are not as, as solid as they seem. So there are many sudden, inexplicable deaths. How can we abide? There is a sea. There is dog. Can we trust in that deep, silent, underwater bark, the ripples allowing a stretching of thought, a wide lookage, to be living in that lighthouse? Thoreau knew it, wrote about it. Yep, you, you know him. Hear this. To be standing in that light, all that light, because every day as we are dying, our gaze is getting tiny with that dog. We become sorrowful. We can cry out. Wait for this now, and hear her sorrowful, knowing bark. For dog will come to comfort us. We can do evil, be violent, use love as if it were a common bone lying on the ground, an inscrutable bone, using it there. Yes. The only true logic is sound. If you don't know, listen. Bend yours. Careful here. An angry murmuring, an ill-placed yelp, a grrr can set off a maelstrom of pain, tragedy, and disease. We need to get it right, to listen well. To not do wrong, we need to abandon our logic and go back. To wait in dog is to get down on all fours, not just on your knees, but to worship the dog privately and wait. The waters are coming. We can, and we will replace the violence with silence and wait. The peace of the dog is promised and soon will be upon us. His waters will rock and hold us. He is the sleep. He is the night. We've been listening to Eileen Miles read from Afterglow. There's there's a, a film that I thought of a lot when I was reading Afterglow that I wondered whether you'd seen. It was the Laurie Anderson's film, The Heart of a Dog, which is kind of a memoir essay, filmic essay about both her blind dog and and the passing away of Lou Reed. Have, have you seen it? I have, I have, and I yeah, I didn't see it for a while, and I was sort of curious. And um, anyway, yeah, I I love that. I love that piece. It's kind of awesome. And I, you know, I've known, I know her a little bit for a long time. And then we just were like, there was a festival in Denmark. We were both at this summer. And so we like ate together and talked and she's such a dog person. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. I mean, and she has a, she has a dog now that is a whole story unto itself. And she's kind of an amazing owner of. Well, one of the things that I, I think both that movie and this book share that I really admire is your, both books are contemplating death of specific people but there's also a way in which it's they feel like they're um touching upon a certain death happening on the national level um, but it's not foregrounded um so in in your case we have the era of george bush as president Mm -hmm. and george bush 
casts a shadow across across Afterglow mm-hmm. in a way and makes periodic cameos um, in the book. And so you've you've made you've made the idea of of a dog mean many things. So you take on your dog's voice. Your dad is your dog. The postman is a dog. God is is a dog, and the dog is God. Um, but the uh, one of the early definitions of dog in in the book is the uh, interns for Bush who are made to stay in the room while he, he farts over and over again and um, and s- stinks them up. And I, I I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what's going on in the background of Afterglow and why why Bush and a little bit of Condoleezza Rice uh, appear mm-hmm. and inform the story. Right, right. Well, I think in a way, I mean, some some of it's really mundane because it's just just as I was writing in my backyard at the beginning of the book, the trees that were in my backyard at the time come into the narrative. You know, the dog is dying and these are the trees. And then this is the weather, this is the news, and this is the political climate of this moment, you know. And one of the things I didn't know about living in California is that you're really shaped by the news in a way that you're not in New York City. You know, in New York City, I, I feel very shaped by the people I meet and the encounters in the real life. But somehow in, um, in Southern California, you would be in your car so much and you would just keep getting these bites and so there was like a higher level of realism. And also I was, I was lonely from my home. I was lonely from New York. And so I read the New York Times in this kind of incredible way. Like it was like reality. Um, but I think, you know, of course, it, George's, George Bush's presidency was shocking in so many ways because, I mean, Reagan was a fool. I think Harry Truman was a fool. I mean, you know, all of our presidents have been many different things. But there have been, there have been some very overtly foolish presidents, guys really not equipped for this job and George Bush was so surely that and the, so I think the um, you know the dog dynamic is is you know kind of master slave you know like subject and master and um, and there was a way when it became so reversed at that time it's sort of like to have such an ill-equipped man be the master made us all be sort of doggy mm. and then to think that those who were even close you know, like the young aspiring people, the good, you know, the good kids, the kids who had done right. And what they get is to be submissive to, I mean, you look at the Trump White House right now and you're like, at what point does, you know, like, do you feel so humbled by the situation that you've got to get out? You know, like people say that, that everybody who's in the Trump White House is a little bit, um, just kind of a little ruined Mm -hmm. by it because you've, you've acceded to, to such you know, like dysfunction, and your all your job is to prop it up. So I think there was just a, a more cartoony, and I think the relationship between this, you know, African American rumored to be dyke um, conservative Condi was like fascinating and weird that she was kind of his support system, and they would even play that she loved him. Remember, it was just like she was like they couldn't. Yeah. It, she could since she couldn't be a lesbian. She had to be in love. The lesbian is always purported to be in love with a certain guy. It's like a trope in TV shows and stuff. There's this like butchy woman, and she just is sad and pathetic and sort of in love with some guy she can't get because she's not pretty enough. Is it true? You've said before that the term politically correct was a lesbian term that was then co-opted by the Bush administration. Absolutely. Can, can you talk about that? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's really funny. It's sort of like in the. You know, in the lesbian, you know, culture, extended culture of the 70s and 80s, but really, the, I guess, probably the mid to late 70s, they were just these sort of characters in the, in the culture who were like the people who were always asking that 
nobody in the room um, used perfume. You know, like it was sort of like they were very sensitive to smells. And, and it was just like, and we're certainly, you know, not meat eating and not, you know, like just there were so many, there was such a list of things that, that were not okay in this room. And I'm very sensitive to these issues in our community. And I request that you talk this way, not that way. And it was so kind of like controlling. And, you know, like, I mean, you know, that, that, those of us who were sort of more loudish and more kind of um, just messier characters la laughed at them, but everybody called them politically correct. Huh. You know, it was po politi those politically correct dykes. And it just meant that, that they really were always policing your speech and policing. So that's what was so strange was to take, to, to suddenly see that flipped into, I mean, some genius located that language and made it be all of us huh. because it's, I mean, that's metonymy, right? Like we suddenly all became the politically correct, those sort of yeah. pathetic, laughable people. Since you said the word pathetic, I, I would I was also hoping maybe you could talk about pathetic and yeah. and the pathetic. And right. you've talked before about pathetic literature and pathetic masculinities, and I think you're working on a pathetic anthology. I yeah yeah. So what does that mean? Like, t can you talk a little bit more about that word and then that word in relationship to literature? Right, right. Um, well, it's something that I, I think I, it was sort of inherited from the art world because there was something in the 90s called pathetic masculinity. And it meant um, it meant guys like um, Mike Kelly and I guess Tony Ausler and sort of of that ilk who were using crafts that were traditionally female and making abject work, you know, stuffed weird, dirty bunnies and banners. Like I think Mike Kelly was working class and went to a Catholic high, or I don't think he went to a Catholic high school, but I think grew up in Detroit maybe. And it, there was a certain kind of like Catholic modernism in the 60s that like weird banners and kind of like kind of a scale, a scaly kind of thing. But it was all kind of Anyway, he just, you know, like they imported all sorts of kind of strange arcane symbols and handmade things and, you know, like the, um, you know, the, the kind of woodwork that dad did in the garage and, and made that all be like high-end art, you know. But the thing that was interesting was that, that it was also rumored that, that a lot of these guys had been educated by second-wave feminists in art schools and that, you know, so that they were very aware of, like, women having these big parties and, and using um, traditional female crafts to create kind of, like, strange, um, you know, lesbian funny love cushions and, and just kind of punky and political things and stuff. And so it was kind of importing that kind of feminism undermining its own undermining the feminine to make political statements and then undermining that as Mike Kelly and all those guys and creating this kind of pathetic masculinity. And then it became guys being personal, guys talking about their personal life, writing words on the wall and doing all this stuff that really had been associated with the, you know, like if you look at Mary Kelly, this kind of, you know, like art of, of um, Eleanor Anton. You know, it was kind of like art of the the conceptual art of the third wave of the second wave art world, and so I I took that to um, to to literature and started to think about writers I knew who I loved, including myself. I thought like, what does pathetic mean? And I started to see it used not as political correctness, but like say on the right, like it was what was her name, Cindy something, who had a son who was killed. Sheehan, yes, Cindy, Sheehan. Cindy Sheehan, her son was killed, and so she parked herself at the end of George Bush's 
street in Texas, I can't remember the name of the town, and just wouldn't go away and started a protest there. And I remember on right wing radio and there was and that pathetic woman, you know, yeah. and what pathetic meant was a woman who wouldn't shut up. It was a woman who was, instead of being meek and mild and knowing her place, she did not know her place, and she was complaining to the president of the United States, and she was getting a lot of other people to complain, and she was taking up a lot of space. And by the same token, I can think of a guy, whether he was straight or gay, maybe he's a little chubby, but in any case, he probably talks a little too much and is a little too sensitive and a little too needy and a little bit not not fulfilling the correct profile of masculinity, you know? And so I started to have this idea that pathetic in America meant kind of not kind of being obedient to your gender roles and, it was, you know, like, and just being excessive and kind of spilling, spilling over the boundaries. And it seemed like another way, like, like genre to, um, to kind of like police police infusions of feeling that we don't want to hear about. And I thought, well, wait a second, think about the writers that I love. And I thought about my work. I thought about Chris Krause and I Love Dick. I thought about the poet John Wieners. I thought about aspects of Samuel Delaney, parts of Kathy Acker. Everybody is kind of molten and out of place and deformed and extra. And I thought, so this is not straight or gay. This is not avant-garde or mainstream. It's, it's kind of a lush deformity. You know, and so I, I taught a class on that when I was teaching at UCSD. I had a seminar called Pathetic Literature, and I taught Kevin Killian. I taught um, Robert Walser, older mm-hmm. older writers who were part of this, um, a, a, a Chinese writer, San Shui, C-A-N-X-U-E. Mm-hmm. And now there's a woman um, who, who killed us, uh, a Taiwanese writer, um, Chu Mao Jian, who wrote, published a book with New York Review of Books called, I think it was Last Days in Montmartre, and she wrote this kind of very, I love Dick, kind of um, pre-internet, um, weird, epist- um, you know, like novel of letters um, that she said right at the beginning that she was going to kill herself at the end of the book, and she did. Wow. And she's an amazing writer, and she's one of us. She's part of our, you know, so it's, so, so, so I taught this class, and then we even had the Pathetic Conference, which was really fun. And Chris came, and we showed Valerie Solanus's um, I, Am, I Am Man, and we had, um, I'm trying to think who else, you know, there were just readings and people showed films and, you know, and it was just kind of like rich and off and weird. And so I guess in there, because there is a chapter in this book um, about foam, which is something I began to be obsessed with when I was kind of teaching this pathetic literature seminar, um, Grove, Grove looked at the book and proposed that we make an anthology. And I, it's funny, I thought of the anthology you know, 10 years ago, and then just, you know, how ideas come and go. And they were like, no, this is, you know, so I, I love that it's like one, bo- one book will literally grow out of the next, which is really what happens. I think it is how books happen, but I've never been kind of commissioned by a publisher, and I sort of adore them for that. Commissioned for the book after. Well, after so they, they, Pathetic Literature is coming up. It's coming up. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. I'm going to ask, I want to ask you a couple questions that come from sort of a ghostly or skeletal source because I was at your talk last time you were here in Portland at Portland State and I have notes mm, but they oh don't but I don't even know it entirely like they're not super fleshed out but I wanted to ask one just based on the jumping off point from yeah. uh, from the notes so um in the talk you you were confronting the question of being an artist in America today among other things amidst imperialism mm-hmm. um and what you called the slave economy and within that context, 
this idea that we have this deep insecurity that great art is being made elsewhere than mm -hmm. America. Um, and that this sort of insecurity that we have points to a certain type of American emptiness. Uh -huh. And then you compared American emptiness to uh, the difference between that and the emptiness we think of in Buddhism. I mean, I think that we've got American emptiness in the White House right now, you know, in a way. I think that's sort of like this Buddhism, which is like kind of not clinging to things, not clinging to ideas and kind of even allowing allowing the emptiness that that is, you know, the self. And then perhaps you have, quote, enlightenment, which is meaning to kind of embrace breath and radiance and, and see everything for this fleeting phenomena, which is beautiful and ugly and everything is, is in, trans, in transit. But I think that there's also, like, what do we, I mean, what do we talk about the, um, you know, like the apocalyptic conditions of our planet, say, you know, like that, you know, like the, the understanding of like global warming, the understanding of like just raiding the earth and, you know, like, you know, kind of knocking down all the rainforests and not believing that any of the things that we're being told by scientists, by native people, by the, the you know, the, um, you know, the people who have really honored, you know, how, how limited and how, um, incredibly, you know, self-revitalizing the planet and nature is. It's sort of like all that's sort of ignored. I mean, like I'm saying what we all know, you know, and it's like, but I think everybody knows that we're there. I See, this is my belief now. I think everybody knows we are there at, at you know, like ground zero in terms of resources. And, and the question is, do we just try and slow it down and come to an agreement that we're at this place and if we can derail it, if we can slow it down, if we can do something different, that's an amazing way for the planet to kind of know each other. Or do we just have a party? You know what I mean? Like just <laughs> we just get a big keg yeah. and, and drive as fast as we can and just close <laughs> our eyes really tight and just, you know, dig our teeth into a big steak and say... Woohoo! You know, like, because that might feel good too at the end of the world. And yeah. I think we're kind of, that's what's in the White House right now. And it's like drill, drill, drill. And I mean, so I think it's like, it's like in Buddhism, they call this kind of creature a hungry ghost, mm -hmm. where you just want to eat everything and you want to devour everything and you just want to, you know, like just have as much as possible because um, you don't want to think or feel, mm. you know? So I think, I think the, the one that kind of materialist, you know, kind of emptiness is is in power right now and that's what we're watching a culture that doesn't care maybe it's this is a good time to ask you the question of whether you would consider running for president again <laughs> and, and I, you've noted that women have been running for president even before women had the right to vote um and it feels like you're at the height of your visibility right now and also that we're in a we're clearly in an age where it, there's a sense of anything goes. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that Trump is president, um, that a socialist, uh, someone who calls himself a socialist, non-Christian, possibly atheist, almost got the nomination for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. So it's um, maybe it is as much a time as ever for a queer woman mm -hmm. president. Would, would you consider running against Trump? I mean, I am so tempted as you describe it, <laughs> Yeah, you know, but I think, you know, and it's, it's funny. It was like, even during the election, I, parts of me just felt like, 
God, I can almost taste it, you know, because it's such an interesting time. And, and I feel like and I feel more experienced, you know, but um, no, I mean, I just I, I think, you know, like I think once you've run this question always comes up, you know, but I think that I think I'm really doing well as what I what I am and what I'm doing now, which is to be sort of an indeterminate writer speaking animal person. <laughs> and I would love, I would just love, I would love a candidate or candidates. I mean, I can't help thinking that we, it, the answer is not a candidate, but tons of candidates. And for us to, but but really an agreement, which we've never had, which is to say that, I mean, what, what we really messed up on this time is that when it became clear that it was, whether you like it or not, it was going to be Hillary. Everybody drop all your sticks and run to the polls and vote for her because this other thing could happen and it will be worse for all of us. Yeah. You know, so I think it's the purpose of, you know, like having a lot of parties in America was to have a big conversation and then to, to merge, you know, and make something happen. You know, I mean, I think the problem is the government. Right. I mean, look, we're discovering right now that we don't have checks and balances, that it's all really organized so that a dictator could completely take over. And we're at the brink of that right now. You know, like there's seriously when when Trump actually talks about with sessions about whether the Justice Department will police journalists for saying things, whether they can take away the licenses of, you know, newspapers and radio stations right. that speak against the president. You know, you know, it's like that just even be saying that is so un-American and and to and but then even to say something is un-American is to still suggest that America stands for certain things and I think we're really learning that it doesn't. Yeah. You know? Well, there's a difference between is it un-American based on what's happened in the past or is it un-American because it doesn't fulfill our as our view of America from an aspirational perspective? Yes. I mean, because like, in one way, it's super American and another way, it's super not American. Right. Right. I mean, one of the things I've done since um, Trump is in power is actually read the people's history of the United States rather than simply owning it, as I've done since the 80s, you know, and it was just like exactly what you just said. I think it's like. Trump is so American, you know, that and even, you know, like I went to Palestine for um, a week in May, which was an incredible, I mean, I was always pro-Palestinian, but um, to be there and to see that and to hear the language that people used about the Israeli occupation of Palestine, and they call it the colonial settlement project, you know, and it was just like, of course, that's for the United States. I mean, there's no difference, you know, and it's like, that's what empires do, you know, and just the fact that, you know, Israel is is being pals with the Austrian Nazi party. Yeah, I, I saw that. I was it was like, like yesterday or the day before, right? Yeah. So. I was like, come on, wait a sec, come on, come on. Everybody must see that, you know, as being just, just a, a signature of, of, you know, wrong government. Who are your friends? Yeah, who are your friends? Yeah, yeah I know. I was like, it's an important question. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, let's, if you don't mind reading one more section, I yeah. would love it. Um, on page... 189, I think. <laughs> okay. But the United States, as we know, is a very evil and accidentally spiritual country. It is a Manichaean country. So accidentally, pyramids speak on its money, and so accidentally, the cadet blue of Persia, a vibrating speaking color, is the uniform of the common U.S. mailman. And your father Terence was one. Terence meaning tender. It's no accident. Am I still rosy? Perhaps you should go and look out the window and see the mixed cadet blue sky. It's a magical time and a thief's time. 
It's little wonder that mailmen worldwide do not simply destroy the mail. In the same way that a chorus of dogs will surely defile and piss on this rug when we are done, the mailman wants nothing better to do than to destroy the mail. Why? All these men and women who are carrying these bags and carriages through the streets of the world, all of them are dogs. Does this not give you a different and a better feeling about the U.S. Postal Service? It was enough for you to learn that there have been mailmen going back in your family's history for as long as there was mail, as long as there was writing. The sky is full of pictures tonight. Cadet Blue is made up of millions of pinpoints of light coming through from the other side. Other side of what, you might ask? The holes in the tapestry and the holes in the sky are of the same ilk. It is for the purpose of reproduction. Now, of course, there is not just one night like tonight. It has a copy, and that has a copy. It is out there somewhere. The universe is doubled. I, Mani, was given prophecy by my twin. Also, if you look long at the double sky, the double universe posing as one establishes a massaging effect on your optic nerve will open a sea of images which is destiny and time. It is open tonight, and tonight, the night after Christmas, all the messages that were ever sent will ever be sent are written in the sky. Why are the postal workers angry? It's not enough to know that they are dogs. Just last night I was told, on Christmas of all time, a sad tale. Of course, Christmas is the saddest day of all for me because Jesus was my other. What day was Mani born? We do not know. No copy of his book, The Arzang, exists. We hope this book will be that copy. We know that it sat on a chair and it was revered. The dogs who work for the U.S. Postal Service are sending false messages and it breaks their heart. The sad story I heard last night was that a dog outside of the service had been killed, had been put down for biting a mailman. This is a slow religious war. The dogs who have taken the bodies of mailmen, either from birth or after the time of the age of 13, when a body of one with a weak nature may be intuited, are the natural prey of the dogs in body who are loyal to the picture, not the script. You would think then that dogs would hate writers, but it is not so. Each writer is required to tell a dog's story, and so dogs attach themselves to writers to spur on the ghostwriting, and a writer might worry that too many dog books are being written, and no one will be interested in reading hers and buying it, and obviously Mary Oliver has written a dog book. Writing a dog book is hard because the writer is in servitude to the dog most clearly now. The dog has been serving the writer for years, opening up her life and getting her out into the air and onto the beaches and even bringing attractive people into the unattractive life of the writer, who often never goes out. And now, once she, he, the writer, succumbs, the dog gives pictures to the writer, which the writer transcribes, and we are seeing it here, most particularly in the chapters X, XX, XXX, XXXX, also potentially entitled Transcript or Rosie at 15. Now we think that it shall be entitled and it shall be strewn, and that is wisdom now in particular when Eileen lays herself down horizontal like a dog so Rosie can have her say. Peggy has spoken, and even the little dethroned one, Hank, he will have his say too, perhaps on a website. Eileen has a dog soul, and it is Rosie. Eileen had a dog soul, and it was Taffy, and Taffy died. Eileen had a dog soul, and it was Walter, and she gave the Walter away and let him be renamed the hideous Nike. She stood on the road like Mani, and she stood too long, and finally even Walter said, let me go. Let's put that one right on the tapestry, pause thumping it, 
Eileen, right up here, because it is a very sad moment. You were laying on the floor by the door, and you were looking in Walter's eyes, and you were praying. And Walter put his paw out, and he simply meant, Eileen, decide. And you thought he meant, go, Eileen. You were not a free soul then, Eileen, but you are free soul now, and this is why you are doing this great work for me, Eileen, and all dogs. I want to return to the mailman and the letter. What is the letter, Eileen? As your father is floating over the house and the child with curly hair, with a perm, ha, is agonizingly writing the words, I will not talk in the corridors, I will not talk in the corridors. You are beginning your weaving, Eileen. We've been listening to Eileen Miles read from Afterglow, a dog memoir. So you're, you're part of this um, amazing Portland-based project from Phonograph Editions uh, of poetry coming out on vinyl. And by coincidence, you and my next guest, Ray Armentrout, are, are the first two poets to have their albums released. I want to talk a little bit about it based on your aesthetic. And maybe this is, I don't know if this is related to pathetic literature or not, but how you wanted the messiness of the process to be retained in the recording. And also Jeff from Phonograph didn't want it to be edited either. So it's like this, it feels like a nice marriage of, of aesthetic that you wanted the false starts, the sips of water, the rustling of the paper, uh, the cursing. And then there's the last track that you recorded on your phone in <laughs> Ireland of the wind in the trees. Uh-huh. Um, and you had talked about early Bob Dylan recordings that you could hear the his the frets mm-hmm. uh, as he's playing the guitar and that added something that wasn't that wasn't a flaw or a, and it kept it from being too precious and there was laughter in the studio yeah and and take two and struggles and yeah yeah can can you talk a little bit more about um you you mentioned something called acousmatic sound mm-hmm. can you talk about that and and maybe any anything else that comes to mind around the 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 process of of recording poetry for for vinyl, well, I think I think part of it just is the literary world is prissy, you know. I think there's just this anxiety about you know fear of people thinking us stupid, and this publishing, and it's a very you know like a very um, pristine industry. I mean, like it is and it isn't. It's so ridiculous because publishing, as we know, is at a time from the 80s or 90s on, at least mainstream started being taken over by more accountants than, you know, and it was sort of like buying a book was like a purchase. It wasn't, and editors don't really edit and, and so on. But but still there is this kind of very conservative thing about what writing is and what narrative is and what, um, you know, standardization on all levels, you know, and I think that the thing that's, that's disturbing about that is it just it just it kind of like it's sort of language is alive you know it's it's doing all these things it's not supposed to do it's sort of like when I first heard about like the poet John Clare who was a contemporary of Keats and he was like a shepherd and he wrote his poems like on pieces of pieces of paper that he would stick in the band of his straw hat and he would sleep in the fields and he he spelled funny you know, and he had a funny accent and, you know, and it just, it just seems so ripe, you know, and when you read his nature poems, there's like, he has a book called The Shepherd's Calendar and it's like, it's almost cinematic. I mean, you can almost see the fish leap, you know, and you can almost smell the, you know, and part of it is the irregularity of the spelling and it was just Mm -hmm. like his, you can feel him reaching for language, you know, and it it just makes me think of like, there's a Charles Olson line about, he says, um, I like language that still has a little dirt on its roots. And there are words, and and there are words that feel old like that, you know, like odd words, you know, like sometimes when you're looking, 
you're looking into a word or a spelling or a usage, you suddenly start falling through time, you know, and, and language is deep, you know. So I think, you know, like that's true of like publishing and printing and on the page. And there's only one, you know, like there's a standard spelling and there's a standard um, dialect. And I remember, you know, like I'm so much a product of the 70s and when, when there was suddenly like an idea that might be black English, you know, like in different different ways, you know, but still there was one white English because working class means stupid, you know, working class means illiterate, you know, and then another circles working class means racist, you know, so there's just so many associations that mean, and yet you listen to a Bob Dylan song um, that wrote or, you know, like, ain't no use in turning out the light, babe, that, that light, that light I ever knowed, you know, and it's just song that we memorize and repeat and, and record always has irregularities that everybody learns, you know? And um, and so I think it was just like, it was such an opportunity to put that in action when we did that recording. Because I think they were just, you know, like we were either going to go into the studio and make this recording or use something that existed. And even in the making, when I, I recorded it in Europa and at a little, you know, there was a, what, the Harry Smith recording studio there. And, and Ambrose Bai, who was Ann Waldman's son, did the recording. And, and Ann, it was so funny because in the studio, I think I was like finishing a poem and doing what I often do in readings, like throwing the piece of paper on the phone. And Ann charged in the, into a recording room to tell me that I shouldn't do that because you could hear the papers, you know. And, and I knew that like Ambrose and I made eye contact and we were like, you know, I think we're going <laughs> to go for that sound, you know. And, yeah. And, um, so it was just it was really fun that that those guys were like with me on it. And then I think that inspired me to throw in some Irish trees. I don't, I don't know if this is related, but and I don't know that I can re recapture what Natalie Diaz said in a talk that I went to of hers. But she did this. Uh, the poet Natalie Diaz did a talk on um, repetition in the uttered word versus the written word mm -hmm. and how like there's no such thing as repetition in, in an uttered word, that it's always different. Every right. time you utter a word, it's different. And how she's trying to bring the utterance into the written word so uh -huh. that we don't see the, we don't tend to look at the word green written twice as being different. And she's, she gave a lecture basically on, on that it is different, but how can we make it seem more like utterance? Right, 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 which is such a great challenge. That's incredible. Yeah. There's also this mysterious line in Afterglow that I wanted to ask you about. Um, you say, Gertrude Stein is a very great weaver. All writers who use the sonic mode in writing are returning the fruits to the cave. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I just thought of that because of the vinyl, because of the words, the sonic mode. Not that that has anything to do with the recording that you did. But do you have any sense of why that's in Afterglow? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, well, I think even, even returning the fruits to the cave is like um, going back to the womb. You know, like, yeah. you, can you go, I mean, like, can you go home? I know there's some, cra some crazy, um, there's a great book called Bubbles by Peter Sloterdijk which I really recommend. And he, in it, he, he recounts some story, which is like, I think a Chinese myth about some woman who was, what was it? She was pregnant for like 10 years and she gave birth to an old man. And it was just, you know, like so off and so wrong, you know, and um, it just kind of gave you this different sense of time. But I think that um, certainly when I talk about the sonic mode, I mean, like Stein, what Natalie is talking about is, is pure Stein. You know, that it's sort of like it's not repetition, it's insistence, you know, and when you hear something again, it's sort of, and again, I think in my experiences, 
more, I think, in journalism than in fiction when I've written, you know, like reviews or something. They'll say, well, you just use this word, you know, so that using it again is repetitious and stuff. And when instead it's metonymic, you know, it's sort of like you were right. here with me then when we all laughed at how somebody said cow. And over here, when we say cow again, it's inflected by that moment we were all there. It's sort of it's communal. It suggests that we have continued, you know, and, and I think repetition has that kind of liveliness. And that was exactly what Stein was talking about. And to me, when I first read her work, I thought, oh, it's a it's a voice print. And she has that whole idea. I mean, like, it's how she's declaring herself to be a genius, too. But that she has the idea that, that to be talking and thinking at the same time was, was, you know, was the performance of genius. Yeah. You know? But I think, I mean, truly, I think we're all geniuses. You know, I mean, that's what we're shooting for is a genius would be, I mean, like, it's like genie. It's like this having a spirit. It's be, being with your spirit in the moment of 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 the action, you know, not not being in two places, trying to be one. Yeah. Well, I've noticed something that when you describe books that you love, that you often use the word excessive as a form of praise. So you say that about Daniel Brzezinski's latest book, mm-hmm. and you say that to C.A. Conrad. You say you say your work saves my life. Your excess, and I and I know you've been reading or recently read Dahlgren by Delaney. And I would suspect you'd praise it as excessive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've also said that gender itself creates excess. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk a little bit about excess. Yeah. And is that related somehow to um, pushing back against the standardization and the preciousness you were talking about earlier? Or is it something entirely different? I mean, why do we have to have, you know, men's rooms and women's rooms? I mean, it's just like that kind of like all the kind of I feel like all the distinctions that we make are, are policing energy, policing power, policing authority, and so on. And I think, you know, like, I think excess is like, whoa, like, you, you, you know, like, it's like, one of the greatest excessive things I, I've ever seen was at an artist colony at, at McDowell, where, um, you know, we would have these, um, we were to do presentations, and you were to give a 20 or 30 minute presentation. And I think the idea was that, you know, we were all in community and, Everybody was doing their work, and it was weird because it was sort of a burden in a way that you should have to do a presentation at all. But then if you were going to do it, it shouldn't be too long, you know. And so it was very, you know, it was very um, kind of socially inflected, you know, the nature of the performance. And, um, and then this one guy who was a composer did – he had clearly – lost it over the environment and just had started to care more about the environment and what was going on than – music and the composing and so instead of talking about instead of playing something for for us like the other composers or even talking about it he started showing charts and maps about the environment and he went and he went and he he went on for two hours people were so mad at him you know and it was just like it just wintered down to two or three of us who were just like couldn't get enough and were so excited you know and i guess you I mean obviously it's like there are kinds of there are kinds of excess that that I would flee from too, but 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 it seems to me that it should be available to us what we the too much that we want and to find you know texts and experiences and things that that will will go way off the road mm. you know and and because we need to we need to be there to you know like to kind of rejigger the whole system yeah you know and so I just I was just like the fact that he bucked it meant that he was wildly passionate and just something mattered more than music. 
And I thought, that's the kind of composer I am on, in awe of, because when he comes back to music, if he ever comes back to music, he's going to have something so different. I bet. Yeah. So um, if we were to imagine your life post-Afterglow, um, I just had a question that came out of your interview with Morgan Parker at the Literary Review, and you're talking about aging and mortality in relationship to your art and your writing practice. And in that interview, you were 64 and said that, of course, you didn't know if you'd lived to be 94, 74, 65. Mm -hmm. And then you say, I feel like I need to take this time on as space and space in which to have my own vision and my own practice. And then you say you're becoming more introverted and that you're ready to beck it. Uh, and so I, I want to know what that means. Like, what does it mean to, to Beckett? Right, right. And, and what, is it, what does it mean to you yeah. to Beckett and to take um, time on his space? Right, right, right. If that still feels true to you. Yeah, no, it isn't. It's just like, I mean, it was, just, it was a challenge. I was like, am I, how am I doing, you know? Because um, I think, I think when, I, when I thought about what it might, I was like, when I would assert, I want to be Beckett, meaning, meaning that it, every time I ever read a interview with Beckett, it would be like, it was so hard to get an interview with Beckett that it was just like, you know, he lived in Paris, but he talked to very few people and um, he just lived in this very obscure way and everybody honored that Beckett was like that. And And it just seemed so incredibly desirable, you know, and, you know, here I am, I'm like a, you know, like a laughing horse or something and I'm, you know, doing a 37 city tour and, and so on. But it's, but, you know, and I love this and I love that, but it's the, me, the model for, or the model for what I want for a long time has been that I do something like this for a while. And then I just, you know, shut the hell up for, you know, six months or a year or however long and just do my work. And, you know, and, and cause I think time is space, meaning that you can feel that excessive, like I can fill this with anything I want, mm. you know? And, and cause I think I know what there's this book in this book and then there's a screenplay like a movie project and I have things that I'm excited about doing and I'm really excited about doing something that I don't know about you know I don't know what that is and I feel like you get it in that in that abyss you know but if that abyss doesn't exist I was like what's the point of getting everything you ever wanted in some way I mean like I've always like years ago I think what did I really wanted like I wanted I wanted a recording of my work you know what I mean like I wanted um my, my, you know, I wanted a CD of, I mean, I just wanted a really simple record, you know, like, but, and I do, and I do, I mean, I've, you know, made audio books, like, that is great, I love that, and I'm working on a film, and I'm just doing things, you know, I, I had a, I got a good publisher for my selected, I really wanted that, you know, I wanted Chelsea Girls to come out again, so it's like, I'm, I'm getting the things I want as a writer, but it's, sh- I feel like, what good is it if it doesn't give you what you wanted when you were first a writer, which was this boundless feeling of freedom, you know, to make in. And and so that's, you know, like, I guess that's what I was talking about then. And that's what I still want. And so I guess I would throw out Beckett now and would, would say, I want to, I want to be, you know, I want to be Miles, you know, I want to do, you know, which wouldn't, my, my freedom wouldn't look like his. I don't, you know, um, but, but yeah, I want to be in that, I want to be in that space. Yeah. Yeah. It was great having you on the show today. Eileen. Yeah, thank you. You've asked such smart questions. We're talking today to Eileen Miles about Afterglow, a dog memoir. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. 
If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.